Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. The recent agreement on a global minimum tax and other changes to tax rules around the world have called into question the future of tax competition. Each year, the Tax Foundation puts out their International Tax Competitiveness Index, which seeks to measure the extent to which a country's tax system adheres to two important aspects of tax policy. It's always interesting, but the global tax agreement does raise the question of whether the index is still relevant. To talk about that issue, I've asked Daniel Bunn to the show. Daniel is the Vice President of Global Projects at the Tax Foundation, where he researches international tax issues with a focus on tax policy in Europe. Prior to joining the Tax Foundation, Daniel worked in the U.S. Senate at the Joint Economic Committee as part of Senator Mike Lee's Social Capital Project and on the policy staff for both Senator Lee and Senator Tim Scott. In his time in the Senate, Daniel developed legislative initiatives on tax, trade, regulatory, and budget policy. He has a master's degree in economic policy from Central European University in Budapest, Hungary, and a bachelor's degree in business administration from North Greenville University in South Carolina. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I actually saw your article, which is what triggered this conversation, because it is a really interesting question now about whether or not these kind of, you know, whether or not the index and these marks of how competitive a country might be is going to matter as the OECD uh, deal moves forward. So before we jump right into the competitiveness piece, can you maybe give our listeners like a real quick synopsis of where we are on the OECD deal? Absolutely. So this OECD deal, which has grabbed uh, headlines for a few months now, it focuses on cross-border taxation of large multinational companies. And it seeks to set a global minimum effective tax rate for those large multinational companies and force a subset of large multinationals change where they pay taxes to have them pay more taxes in places where their sales are made relative to where their employees or their headquarters are. This deal has been worked out over a number of years, and it will probably be a number of years before it is fully implemented. The goal is to have this minimum tax put in place in a number of countries uh, by the end of 2022, and these rules changed for where companies pay taxes uh, sometime, I believe, in 2023. And it's kind of at the point where we know countries have agreed, mm-hmm. but we haven't seen all the details yet. So this is really where kind of the rubber meets the road over the next uh, month or several months as more of these details get released and we see exactly where the agreement is going to land. So there's a lot of work left to be done, but I, I think you know there's some significance here that the agreement has already been uh, kind of set. And this is, I think, a really interesting jumping out point for this discussion because you mentioned specifically the global minimum tax rate. And I think a lot of people, when they think about tax competition, think about it solely in terms of a tax rate, right? So like the lowest tax rate, most competitive. That's kind of, I think, where a lot of our minds go. 
but that's not how you guys do your index. So before we kind of dive into the deeper pieces, where does a tax rate factor into tax competition? So that's that's a great question. So the tax rate, if we were thinking about just where a company or an individual might pay the lowest level of taxes, the tax rate might be what you look at. Um, but we think of taxes as a obviously a way to fund government programs. And you have to have some level of revenue north of zero to be able to fund government services. So we don't assume that a 0% tax rate is the, uh, the way to go. And in fact, there's the tax rate, the tax base, design issues with how complex your tax system is. And what we try to do with the International Tax Competitiveness Index is think about sustainably funding public programs in a way that does not create too many distortions for businesses or individuals. Now, those distortions often come when you have higher rates. Uh, So being able to have relatively moderate rates while also being able to fund your public uh, systems appropriately is kind of where we try to uh, aim the index in kind of a principled way, rather than just focusing on whether a rate is too high or too low. Right. And that would explain why, for example, Sweden is in the top 10, even though they have what a lot of folks would consider a relatively high, and I'm using air quotes, high tax rate, while some of the places that we would think of as tax havens do not. Yeah, exactly. So we don't include the overall tax burden, the tax to GDP ratio that a lot of folks think about when they think about high tax or low tax economies. We don't include that in the index. We want to think about policy design. Uh, and where that policy design leads to more distortions or misalignment with peer countries. So you could have a tax system uh, like Sweden um, that raises a significant amount of revenue, some of the, you know, one of the highest tax to GDP ratios in the OECD. And yet, because the system is relatively well designed, kind of broad-based, lower rate taxes, and without the numerous layers of taxation where you might have in some countries, you know, multiple transaction taxes or taxes on multiple different bases. So with a simpler, broader based tax system, the index views that as relatively competitive, as opposed to looking at, you know, you might look at uh, Ireland in our index. And Ireland is well known for its low rate of corporate tax. But when you take a perspective that includes individual taxes, consumption taxes and things like that, it becomes less attractive because of the complexities that are embedded in the system and some of the distortions that follow from those complexities. And when you talk about distortions for folks who aren't maybe as used to talking about tax policy in that way, what kinds of things are you talking about? So economists like to think of something called excess burden. So when you get charged for a tax, there's a tax amount that you have to pay. You know, let's say it's $100. But let's say you're looking at that tax bill and you say, well, if I chose to do something different, if I chose to, like in the US, if I chose to be a, uh, a partnership rather than a C corporation, or if I chose to purchase a good that was exempt from sales taxes versus a good that is covered by sales taxes, those decisions are influenced by the tax system and they can distort behavior. Now, the more important distortions, I think, economy-wide are the decisions of whether a company puts in a new investment, whether they're going to you know, open up that next factory or their next office or that next store, 
um, and what and how high the tax burden is on that investment decision, or for personal income purposes, whether the tax system discourages work or it discourages savings, or like I was saying with the sales tax example, if there's enough of a difference between buying something in in my state or going across state lines or choosing one product that's exempt from sales tax or another or waiting for a sales tax holiday, all of those distortions are trying to uh, influence behavior or or they end up influencing behavior. And what we try to do at Tax Foundation with this index is say, you know what, the tax system should not distort this much behavior. In fact, especially when it comes to things like consumption taxes, the tax system should be as neutral as possible to some of those decisions uh, so that you're not creating excess burden. So instead of thinking about the amount of tax you have to pay, you change your behavior to avoid some of that tax. And it's interesting because I guess when we think about the global tax agreement, we are really focused on this rate, but you keep mentioning behavior. A lot of the movement to change the existing structure has to do with changing behavior. There's this idea that that you know companies, multinational companies are forum shopping based on tax rates. So do you think that the global tax deal will change behaviors? Absolutely. I think the global tax deal will change behavior both on the government side and on the company side. On the company side, I think what's interesting here, Kelly, is that there has been a movement over the last decade to change a lot of rules for multinational companies. And this is, for a lot of companies, just the next round of changes. Now, Mm -hmm. it's in some ways more significant than some of the other changes that have been put in place because there's broad-based agreement among a larger set of countries. But there has been so many policy changes put in place for multinationals, and a lot of that behavior has already changed. There's a lot of activity that has come back to the U.S. post-tax reform, especially as it relates to intellectual property and where that's located. But I think this deal will continue to shift corporate behavior. It will also likely shift government behavior. So if you're a government that has tax rules that provide an extremely low rate of tax and this global minimum tax is in place, then you might say, hey, maybe some of these incentives, maybe some of these special policies that provide an extremely low rate of tax, maybe we don't need those anymore. Um, Maybe you could simplify things. Maybe you could change the way you calculate your tax system or just align to the rules in different ways. So there will be kind of a game-changing effect here. It's not clear where it's all going to play and pan out. Uh, but one one example, just I think it's kind of interesting, Italy has a patent box uh, that provides a relatively low rate of tax for IP-related income. And the Italian government, I believe it's partly because of this deal, is deciding to repeal that and instead substitute a subsidy for research and development Uh, that might be a little more aligned with this new approach from the global agreement. So it's not clear if everybody's going to do what Italy's looking at as far as this patent box uh, switch to R&D subsidy approach, but I think there will be some behavioral shift both on the side of governments and on the side of companies. And I was going to actually ask about government shifts because one of the interesting sticking points, of course, during the negotiations was the digital services tax. And you actually mentioned that in your article, that you know, part of the deal is that those are going to be removed long-term. When you mention companies and governments being used to the idea that things shift a lot, 
Do you anticipate, I mean, your your example just now was a positive one, but do you anticipate that governments might start looking for other kinds of taxes to replace revenue and kind of, you know, a la digital services? Like maybe since we're taking that away, they'll find something else. Or do you think that overall they're going to be looking towards, as you mentioned, maybe a more positive shift? That is a really tricky question that comes down to kind of individual country assessments. So some of the revenue from digital services taxes, maybe not all, but some of it will likely be replaced with the way this deal works. Companies that some of the largest companies in the world, around the 100 largest companies in the world, will be paying more tax in places where they don't have employees or offices, but they do have sales. And that will likely accrue to some of these countries like France, like Spain, like the UK that have digital services taxes in place. It's not totally clear if that's going to be a one-for-one replacement because there are some companies that are paying digital services taxes that won't be subject to this new allocation. And there are some companies who are not paying digital services taxes who will. So it's really complicated to say who's going to be kind of a winner or loser on the revenue side. But some countries uh, like Nigeria uh, have not signed up to this global tax deal because they have a policy, a significant digital presence, a, uh, a business nexus uh, policy that they think brings in more revenue than they would get under this global tax deal. And they're, they're concerned that by signing up to it, they would be signing away part of their, their tax base. I think some of the digital services taxes are going to go away if this gets implemented. There's a lot of questions about U.S. implementation, but if the U.S. is able to hold up its side of the bargain, I believe you know a lot of the European digital services taxes will go away pretty quickly. Whether or not some of the other policies that you have, like I mentioned in Nigeria or India, you might have some of those conversations take a little bit longer. Uh, I, I like to use the metaphor of weeding the garden. You know, this new global tax system, it's kind of like you're trying to plant some new seeds, mm-hmm. but you've got to also be able to weed the garden to make sure that the, the new growth is able to be healthy. So it's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. As a plant lover, I love that analogy. <laughs> one of the interesting things, as you mentioned, Nigeria, you know, one of the kind of the premises of this deal is that for it to work, Everybody has to cooperate. And so far, not everybody has signed on. The majority have, but not everybody has signed on. Is that concerning, do you think, for down the road? Do you think that if there is resistance down the road, that maybe some of the countries that originally said this looks great, maybe start rethinking their policies? I think that's a concern for any deal of this size. Uh, So, you know, the historic significance here. Kelly, is that you've got more than 130 countries signed up to something. Right. In order to get that something done, there's going to need to be continued work to make sure that everybody kind of stays within the fold as things get implemented. Now, there were certainly compromises along the way. And some of the countries that joined, uh, I'm sure we'll be looking for opportunities in the future to reopen some of these negotiations and maybe get a little bit more out of the deal. But it's going to it's going to take some time to see the initial implementation stage and who all signs up and puts things into law. I think on the global minimum tax, the policymakers at the OECD will always say that this is kind of a a critical mass equation. So if you get enough countries to sign up to the global minimum tax, 
then you don't necessarily have to worry about getting everybody in compliance. There's kind of a belt and suspenders approach to the policy where even if you're outside the deal, it's possible that the minimum tax will apply to companies from your jurisdiction. On the changing of where companies pay taxes, this is where countries' policies really need to hit fit uh, hand in glove with each other. So this is where they're talking about a multilateral treaty and multilateral implementation of a new kind of arbitration arrangement for dispute settlement. And that's where I get a little bit worried as to whether you're actually going to be able to see, you know, 130 or so countries all put in kind of the same thing into the law, into their own laws and respect the same kind of dispute resolution processes and all on the same kind of timeline. It's a huge project. And there will be, you know, work along the way to make sure, you know, kind of caretaker work to make sure things are moving along correctly. But at the same time, some of those countries that have compromised to become part of this deal or feel like they've given up something to be part of this deal will probably be looking for opportunities to continue negotiations and change things down the road. And not only, I think, that, but just in terms of administrations changing, because you do have the real potential for change, you know, inside the U.S., inside Germany. I mean, there are countries where regular elections uh, sometimes have surprising results. And so do you think there's any fear that what everybody's agreed to today could be undone with some elections in the future, not just necessarily on the U.S. side, but also across the world? Yeah, I think there is a risk there, partially because one of the things that I think has made this deal successful here in 2021 is the political moment that we're in, a moment where there's a lot of governments who are interested in changing rules for companies. There's a lot of interest in Europe for taxing U.S. companies. There's this recovery from the pandemic where a lot of countries are looking for additional revenues, whether or not these revenues from this deal are going to be all that significant. I'll leave that to the side for the moment. But uh, this political moment where also the Biden administration came in looking for a way to show that they were willing to negotiate on new multilateral projects and things like that. And I'm not sure how long that political moment is going to be sustained in the future. You mentioned potential political change in the U.S. or elsewhere. The stronger the implementation of this deal can be, I think the longer lasting it will be. If countries try to do this kind of in an ad hoc kind of manner um, and with whatever political coalition they can cobble together, uh, then I think there will be some risks that political change will mean that the deal frays over time. And this is where I think in the U.S., uh, you know, there's just last week or I, I guess on Monday, the president signed this bipartisan infrastructure bill in place. And yet there's this other piece of legislation that will likely, very likely be Democrat only. And it's possible that some other pieces of this global tax deal will be implemented in a partisan manner. And the more partisan you make these things, whether in the U.S. or elsewhere, the more risk you open up to as far as to uh, political change down the road. And do you consider politics when you guys are doing your rankings? Is that a, and I don't mean politics in terms of, you know, who wins, who loses, but do you consider like political stability? Does that factor into it? Or is this a purely like numbers game? Majority numbers game. So we don't we don't include political risk or political stability. One of the things that I've thought about including in the index, and it would be it would be a pretty challenging research time intensive thing, would be to look at temporary tax policies. 
Uh, so we know in the U.S., as part of tax reform in 2017, a lot of those policies are set to expire or wind down. And that creates uncertainty for businesses, for individuals. And being able to capture some of that in this type of index would be valuable, but it's not something that we currently capture. Right. It would also, I think, be, as you mentioned, completely, I think, overwhelming to try to sort through all of it, especially at the rapid pace that things are happening now. And um, in the U.S., we've, I think, decided, at least when it comes to tax policy, that we're very happy with temporary changes, (laughs) or at least it feels that way lately. Yeah. And in other countries, they'll have a finance bill every year that changes some taxes. And, you know, sometimes it's momentous, sometimes it's not. Sometimes you've got a country that will signal tax policy changes for four or five years before they become law. And that's kind of like a bonus certainty. Like we know this thing's coming for four or five years and being able to measure those things on an apples to apples basis would be, would be really challenging. So I'm not going to quiz you on the, on the rankings, but I do have a couple of questions. I think especially for our listeners who might not be familiar with it. So I'm, I'm going to link to the rankings, but I was wondering if you could maybe give some insight. I think for somebody who has never seen it before, if I was to say international tax competitiveness, I think they would expect some of the bigger players to be at the very top. And that's actually not the case at all. In fact, at the top are some of the smaller countries in the world and not necessarily the largest economies. So I was wondering if you could maybe give a little bit of insight to our listeners as to why some of the smaller countries, Estonia, of course, being at the top of the list, Latvia, Luxembourg, Lithuania, we don't tend to think of those as economic giants. What was appealing about them that kind of put them at the top of the list? Yeah. So let me make a comment on the small versus large first, and then I'll get into why these um, small countries rank so well. One of the benefits in some ways for some of these smaller countries is that they have a lot of times political opportunities to keep things very simple, Mm -hmm. Um, to be able to say, hey, we're we're a small jurisdiction. We don't have a lot of reason to make things overly complex. In fact, we have a lot of reasons to make things as simple as possible. Um, And so it's not just in tax that you see this kind of simplicity or desire for neutrality. Um, rather than distortions, but it's in other areas of government services. So Estonia, which has ranked at the top of our index since 2014, when we first started doing this, it has a very simple, straightforward tax system. It has a broad-based value-added tax. And to reach back to what we were talking about earlier on the tax-to-GDP ratio, it raises about average as far as the percent of GDP that it brings in in tax revenue. So it's not a low tax jurisdiction. It just has a very simple kind of broad-based tax system, a relatively flat rate on personal income taxes, low compliance costs. In fact, just about everything in Estonia is as digitalized as it can be, including Mm -hmm. the tax system. A lot of these small countries, especially Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, had political moments over the last two decades to be able to kind of reset some policies and think about simplifications and being able to be, you know, not only market-oriented economies in the post-communist world, but to be able to have, you know, kind of customer service-oriented policy regimes, regulatory regimes, and things like that. Also, you know, a lot of the larger countries, they haven't had those political moments of being able to do a hard reset. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of these tax codes, like in the U.S., are more than 100 years old, and things have just been layered on over time. And as 
different industries or different political sectors get concerned about X, Y, or Z, the tax code changes, and you end up with kind of a morass and a large regulatory code and compliance issues and things like that. And that's where, you know, you if you want to kind of strip out the non-G7 countries and just focus on the G7 countries, uh, Germany ranks the best among uh, the G7 in our index. And then uh, Italy ranks down towards the bottom. Italy is the last in last place in the index overall. Um, and another thing with the larger economies is they're more likely to have multiple taxes on different tax bases. So a financial transactions tax, real estate transactions tax, asset taxes, um, different things like that, that make the tax code a little bit more complex and they get punished for that in the index. And I was also really surprised to see New Zealand and Australia ranked so highly. Notably, I would have guessed Australia over New Zealand. And that is just completely based on the idea that I've, in my client practice, that I've worked with a lot of Australians and there's a lot of uh, cross US Australian taxes. So I'm, I'm more familiar with their system. What is it about New Zealand that made it particularly um, compelling on, on the competition level? Because I, I did, th- I found that one also surprising just because I'm not as familiar with their tax system. Yeah, absolutely. So what's interesting about both of those countries, Australia and New Zealand, is they do not rank relatively well on our metric for just corporate taxes. In fact, they're in the, I guess, bottom third of the index on corporate taxes. Mm -hmm. but they rank so much better than all the other countries on individual taxes or consumption taxes or property taxes that they, that kind of pulls them up the index where otherwise they might be, you know, if you were just looking at corporate taxes, they might be towards the bottom. Now, New Zealand gets a lot of praise from tax economists uh, mainly, and I've talked about this a couple of times already, their value-added tax is one of the most efficient in the world. And when I say most efficient, it has a you know a moderate rate um, and it applies to basically everything. You don't have to worry about if you're if you're a, a grocery store or a, a retailer, you don't have to worry about the com- complexities of multiple coatings for different goods that are rated at different levels um, or exemptions or things like that. It's a very broad-based, kind of simple, simple system. And then on property taxes, both. Australia and New Zealand um, provide um, relatively competitive treatment of real property um, as opposed to having these multiple layers of property taxes. Another thing on on Australia in in particular is that they have a uh, impute credit, an imputed credit for uh, personal for like capital gains and dividends taxes um, from the corporate taxes paid. So you're able to get a credit from corporate taxes against your personal um, personal dividend taxes, which provides a level of what we call uh, corporate integration, the integration of the corporate and individual tax code when it comes to capital income. And that's something that index um, rewards as well. It seems like the index rewards simplicity a lot, which is, I think, probably why the U.S. does not rank in the top, because we do, I, when you were talking about, for example, the, the value added tax and about it not having separate categories, we have our categories very wildly just from state to state. Do you think that this is something that, and I know you've worked on the Hill, is this something that folks are looking at and seeing that 
these more simple systems are effective? Or do you think that countries, as you mentioned, like the US with our tax system being as old as it is and kind of set in its ways in some cases, do you think it's really difficult to change the system because it's been this way for so long, whether it's sales tax or income tax? So I always see, you know, having worked on the Hill and having observed, you know, the activity since I've left the the Hill, there's always a a conflict between a lawmaker who wants the tax code to do X and overall simplicity. Because if you have a lawmaker who wants the tax code to do X, it's very likely that X is going to be a somewhat narrow policy in addition to a bunch of other narrow policies where you have lawmakers over the course of history that have created policy XYZ or whatever. And that that's a real challenge because it's parochial issues oftentimes that create a lot of layers of complexity, whether that's a local industry or a preference for um, certain certain types of subsidies for research and development or green investment, or like we're talking about with the Build Back Better plan, you know, subsidies for uh, families with children, whether that's child tax credits or dependent care. And some of these things are laudable policies. Like it's a valuable policy goal oftentimes to do X. The question is whether you want to do that in the context of a tax code that's already relatively complex. And that's really the challenge. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting that when you were talking earlier about how things might be changing and we were talking about these countries that are doing relatively well on the index. I know some of those countries at the top, especially, you know, Estonia, Latvia, they are also right now trying to woo remote workers. And you mentioned that in your article too, the kind of the future of remote work could change the way the index looks as countries are looking to accommodate, possibly grow that section of the economy. Do you think that that will continue long-term? Do you consider that to be kind of a bump? How would you, when you think about the future of tax, and obviously we've been thinking about this agreement and no one has a crystal ball, but individually amongst the countries, when they're doing things on the tax competition side, how do you think the remote work and the pandemic might impact that long-term or will it be long-term? Yeah, I think there will be a long-term shift for policymakers when thinking about how to be attractive to remote workers. And that's not just going to be a tax issue. That's going to be a you know an immigration issue. That's going to be the cross-border working arrangements and treaties and things like that. But the tax issue that I think is important, and it connects back to the global tax deal, there, there are some carve-outs in this global minimum tax, both for payroll and for tangible investment that I think create space for countries to continue to be competitive without having to worry about the minimum tax kicking in. So you can provide flatter or lower top marginal rate and be attractive to certain remote workers. You could also do accelerated depreciation for investment and things like that that would be attractive to both businesses and workers to be able to continue to be competitive even in the context of this global deal. But I will say, you always have to go back to the point I was making about sustainable revenue. You know, you don't want to focus on these carve-outs and say, oh, well, we can, you know, lower the rates to zero or completely carve up our tax base for this because then you'd be left without a tax base. Sure, yeah. I think it's all kind of going to be a new balancing act. So the the weights have shifted around where you're going to be able to focus on some different aspects of your tax system. 
Um, but there's still the desire for sustainable revenue generation in the context of government finance. And my favorite part of reading the report, and it's just because I'm geeky this way, is I loved reading the individual explanations about why countries moved up or down. That's in the index. So um, kind of as our as our close today, if you had to pick one or two countries that you would say folks need to watch for in terms of movement, potential movement on the list, do you have any predictions for what we might see change next year? That is a great question. So one of the countries that is is interesting, and I, I think it'll be worth watching, is actually France. So France has been in the process of putting in several different tax reforms over, over the Macron uh, presidency. And if he gets reelected uh, next year, it's possible that these things will continue. But they've tried to simplify their taxation of businesses, bring down their corporate tax rate, bring in uh, a couple of simplifications on property taxes. And some of those things have helped their ranking on the index. Now, they're still in the bottom portion of the index. But one of the things I like to tell policymakers in the bottom portion of the index is there's a lot of room for improvement. So you could do a lot of things that would help you improve on the index. Right. And I think that's that's one of the countries that I'd be watching. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I think this has been fascinating. And I think, you know, it gives uh, listeners a lot to think about in terms of the direction and, and kind of context of the global tax agreement. If folks wanted to find you either on social media or on the web and you wanted to be found, where would you send them? I'm happy to be found. I'm on Twitter at Daniel D. Bunn, and that's the best place to find me. I'm also on LinkedIn. Great. And I'll be sure to put both of those links in the show notes so that people can easily find you. Thank you so much. This has been terrific. Thanks, Kelly. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.